Hello and welcome to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetic Society podcast with me, Dr. Katani. In this episode, we're telling the story of transmissible tumours, looking at the history of contagious cancers in dogs, devils, clams and cannibal hamsters, plus the man who caught cancer from his tapeworm. Before we start, a quick plug for the second series of Ingenious, my BBC Radio 4 show looking at the stories and a bit of the science behind our genes. This time around, we're tackling the fat gene, FTO, the Huntington's gene, the warrior gene, the HIV resistance gene, and the eyeball gene, or PAC6, to give it its scientific name. I'm delighted to be back for another series, as it's a great opportunity to share the kinds of stories we tell here on Genetics Unzipped. Last time we covered the ginger gene, the breast cancer gene, the Alzheimer's gene, the milkshake gene and the cyclops gene, or sonic hedgehog, which we also covered in a recent episode of this show. Each episode is only 15 minutes or so, so do go back and check them out if you've got some time over the summer. You can listen to all the episodes from both series on iPlayer if you have access. Just search for Ingenious Cat Arnie or follow the link from the page for this podcast at geneticsunzip.com. Today we've got another Cat Arnie project for you to enjoy. This episode is a special excerpt from my latest book, Rebel Cell, Cancer, Evolution and the Science of Life, which is coming out in paperback in the UK on the 5th of August. It's a fascinating, fact-packed and surprisingly fun tour through what we currently know and don't know about what cancer is, where it comes from and where it's going. Rebel Cell was selected as one of the Times Best Books of 2020, saying, A lively study of the big C, which makes the case that cancer is the price we pay for our marvellously complicated bodies. It's been described as a book packed with big ideas about life. Every chapter in it has something that made me think, wow. A crystal clear reappraisal of the story behind that word we fear to mention. A myth-busting masterclass in science writing. A bright, engaging read fizzing with energy and metaphor. Not boring at all. And a riot. And Lawrence Hurst, president of the Genetic Society, said, This lively, scholarly and accessible book should be essential reading for oncologists the world over and powerfully demonstrates that nothing in biology, cancer included, makes sense except in the light of evolution. If that gets your curiosity going, then please do pre-order the paperback of Rebel Cell now from your retailer of choice. The more people pre-order, the greater the chance of going into the charts, and maybe, just maybe, my mum will be proud of me at last. Rebel Cell is also out in the US and many other territories, and it's available wherever books are sold. Just search your favourite retailer, or head to rebelcellbook.com to buy a signed copy or signed bookplate sticker. Thank you. Perhaps the most famous four-legged inhabitants of Tasmania, the rugged island off the South Australian coast, are its eponymous Tasmanian devils. These carnivorous mammals are solitary and nocturnal, earning their name owing to their vicious behaviour towards their kin, aggressively screeching and biting each other in the face if their paths cross. The black fur, fierce red ears, mean stare and habit of feeding on dead flesh adds to the satanic allure. 
Even their Latin name, Sarcophilus Harrisii, Harris's flesh lover, has more than a little touch of the darkness about it. Sadly, the Tasmanian devil's gothic good looks are under threat from devil facial tumour disease, or DFTD, an aggressive and unpleasant cancer that forms ulcerated tumours around the animal's mouth and jaws, eventually metastasizing into their internal organs. Unfortunately for the already endangered devils, the cancer spread rapidly through the population since the first cases were reported in the mid-1990s. In just a few years, it had led to a major collapse in the population, with only a few cancer-free pockets remaining. When DFTD was first identified, the way it spread through the population made people think it might be owing to a virus. There were also concerns that the same virus might be jumping into humans, sparked by an unusually high number of blood cancers in rural areas of the island. The discovery of its true nature fell to Anne-Marie Pierce, a Tasmanian government researcher. Throughout the 1980s, Pierce worked at the Royal Hobart Hospital in Tasmania as a cytogeneticist, specialising in studying the faulty chromosomes in tumours to help with diagnosis and treatment. As well as looking at cancers from human patients, Pierce was also kept busy with a steady stream of samples from devils. By 2004, her interest in the growing scourge of DFTD had led her to become the senior geneticist for the Save the Tasmanian Devil programme in the government's animal health laboratory, with the hope of pinning down the culprit responsible for all these cancers. Almost immediately, she noticed something very odd about the chromosomes in all these tumours. They were all exactly the same. And even more strangely, they bore no resemblance to the animals from which they'd been taken. This was completely weird. Because each cancer arises from cells within that individual's body, every tumour should be a unique genetic event with its own particular chromosomal idiosyncrasies, including cancers caused by infectious viruses. Yet, her results looked for all the world like it was the cancer cells themselves that were being transmitted between animals and spreading the disease. Huh? Publishing this curious discovery in a single-page paper in the prestigious journal Nature in 2006, Pierce and her departmental colleague Kate Swift put forward the idea that DFTD was an infectious cancer rather than a virus that was passing from one devil to another. Further work from a team at the University of Sydney, Australia, conclusively proved Pierce and Swift's hypothesis correct. The facial tumours were caused by an immortal rogue clone of cancer cells that had somehow escaped the bonds of the animal in which it originally arose and become transmissible. Yet nothing was known about exactly where this adventurous cancer had come from and why it had become contagious. Growing up in Tasmania, 
geneticist Elizabeth Murchison was used to spotting deceased devils on the side of the road, often knocked over while scavenging on other animal road traffic victims. Now a group leader at the University of Cambridge, UK, she and her team are studying both the origins and the genetics of DFTD in order to help save the species. One of the first specimens they studied was collected by Murchison herself, who spotted the corpse of an infected devil while driving home from a backpacking holiday and popped it in the back of the car. In 2010, she published her first major paper about the devil tumours, comparing cancer samples from that first unlucky animal with a few others that she'd collected over the years. By comparing the patterns of gene activity between the cancer cells and different body parts of a healthy devil, she realised that the cancer probably started from a Schwann cell. These cells normally act as a kind of electrical insulation tape, wrapping around nerve cells and protecting the electrical signals to and from the brain. Interestingly, they also love to move. Schwann cells migrate rapidly through the body and spread along the long cables of nerves, so they already have a strong tendency to spread. Maybe making the leap between individuals was just the next step in their evolutionary journey. Murchison and her team also started digging into the DNA of the devil tumours. Many parts of the tumour DNA are highly similar to the genomes of devils alive today, suggesting that the original devil that spawned the cancer lived fairly recently, probably in the late 1980s or early 1990s. Like mammals, female marsupials have two X sex chromosomes, while males have an X and a Y. Although Murchison and her team found no obvious sex chromosomes, they found what looked like the remnants of two X chromosomes embedded elsewhere in the tumour genome, and no trace of a Y, suggesting that the first founder devil was probably female. Although she died before the disease started to become obvious across the island, her cancer cells live on, continually evolving and changing as they spread through the rapidly shrinking population. It was odd enough to have found one contagious cancer that had evolved so recently with such devastating effects. So it was doubly strange when Murchison and her team found a second. While analysing tumour samples from five devils found in southern Tasmania, the researchers were stunned to see that the chromosomes in the cancer cells looked completely different from the original DFTD cells, yet were all the same as each other. The big giveaway was the presence of a Y chromosome, proving that the founder of this second tumour must have been male. On the surface, however, it's impossible to tell the difference by looking at infected animals or tumours. To misquote the Irish poet Oscar Wilde, to have one transmissible cancer in your species may be regarded as a misfortune. To have two looks like carelessness. So what's going on? As we sit in her office decorated with several stuffed toy devils, Elizabeth explains to me, two things need to happen for a cancer to become transmissible. First, it has to find a means of escape from one host to another. And secondly, it has to acquire adaptations to evade the immune system that would see it as a foreign graft. 
Either of these things is unlikely to happen, and it's even less likely that they would happen together. Looking at how these normally solitary animals act towards their neighbours, it becomes easy to see how DFTD manages to tick the first box. Although they're quite docile around humans, devils don't play nicely with each other. As they fight and bite, clumps of cancer cells are torn off the jaws of an infected animal and lodge in the fresh wounds that it has inflicted on its opponent. Without such an easy route of transmission, it's unlikely that DFTD would have gained such a lethal foothold in the population. So that leaves us with the second challenge. Why doesn't the devil's immune system recognise and reject this invader? Mammals and marsupials have evolved highly complex immune systems that continually seek out and destroy anything that looks like it doesn't belong in there, including cells from a stranger, whether of the same or another species. The task of spotting the difference between this is me and this is not me is made easier by genes known as the Major Histocompatibility Complex, or MHC. These are the most diverse parts of the genome, encoding molecules that stick out of the surface of cells like waving flags. If these flags look strange or foreign, then the immune system springs into action and destroys the invader. The protective abilities of the MHC system explain why it's so important to match transplant donors with recipients carefully. Even with the best matches, people getting organ transplants have to take immune-suppressing drugs to prevent rejection. Curiously, Tasmanian devils will normally reject tissue grafts from other devils, so they have at least some level of immune surveillance working. It turns out that cells from the first tumour have lost all of their MHC genes, so they can jump into any devil. The second, more recent cancer still has its MHC genes, but because the Tasmanian devil population is so small and inbred, a number of the animals on the island share them too. This lack of diversity means that the cancer cells can move between a limited range of genetically similar animals without alerting the immune system. It also looks like this second tumour is on the way to losing its MHC genes altogether, providing an important clue as to how these cancers are likely to evolve. Losing MHC isn't essential for a tumour to become transmissible, but it does increase its capacity to move into a larger population of hosts. But while we can blame evolution for the adaptations that enabled the facial tumours to make the leap from one individual to another, it may also be helping the devils to fight back. Wildlife ecologist Rodrigo Hamedi and his colleagues at the University of Tasmania have been keeping a close eye on the dwindling devil population, aided by locals who can report devil sightings through a smartphone app. It looks like some of the devils are evolving immunity to DFTD, resisting infection with the tumour cells. They've also found more than 20 cases where infected devils have managed to heal themselves, with gory tumours showing complete regression without any human intervention. It's too early to say whether the devils have managed to save themselves, and a new system of roadside fences and warning signals is helping to reduce the toll of road deaths. But their future looks less imperiled than it did a few years ago. 
It's relatively simple to understand the emergence of two strains of transmissible devil tumours by invoking the animal's unique circumstances. An easy route of contagion, coupled with a small population with low genetic diversity. But it's harder to explain how a cancer affecting a much more widespread and genetically diverse species has also made the leap to independence. You're listening to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetics Society podcast. Find us online at geneticsunzipped.com and on Twitter at geneticsunzip. And while you're at it, why not tell a friend so more people can discover and enjoy the show? In 1876, a Russian vet named Mstislav Novinsky noticed an unpleasant-looking cancer affecting the genitals of dogs, which seemed to be passed on by mating. To prove his theory, he rubbed bits of tumour from one infected dog into small cuts that he'd made on the genitals of another, which then went on to get the disease. At the time, this sparked a lively debate among scientists who were still arguing heatedly about the causes of cancer. The idea that cancer itself might be contagious was intriguing, as well as providing justification for stigmatising and isolating patients. Quarter of a century after Novinsky's experiments, German vet-turned-doctor Anton Sticker set to work in his lab in Frankfurt to investigate this unusual canine cancer, as well as the potential for other types of cancer, including human tumours, to be transplanted from one individual to another. He confirmed Novinsky's observations that the tumours could be passed from dog to dog, and the disease even bears his name, Sticker's sarcoma, throughout much of the scientific literature. Others took up the transmissible tumour baton with Alfred Carlson and Frank Mann, two scientists at the University of Minnesota in Rochester, demonstrating an impressive commitment to the cause. Between them, they transplanted the same cancer into 40 generations of dogs, finally publishing their findings in the early 1950s. Eventually, Cancer researchers throughout the early 20th century settled on the idea that the disease was either the result of alterations in chromosomes or the work of infectious viruses. Sticker's contagious sarcoma, now known as CTVT, for canine transmissible venereal tumour, was viewed as little more than a scientific curiosity, despite affecting countless dogs in countries all over the world. The idea that tumours could be spread by cells passing from one animal to another seemed bizarre and unbelievable. Many thought that there must be a virus at work, even though attempts to induce cancers with highly filtered cell-free extracts from tumours had drawn a blank. This conundrum intrigued Robin Weiss, a virologist at UCL, who felt sure that CTVT must be caused by an elusive virus that nobody had yet managed to find. Determined to be the one to track it down, he set to work analysing DNA from tumour samples retrieved from 16 dogs in Italy, India and Kenya in search of leads. Rather than finding hidden traces of an unknown virus, 
he discovered the same thing that had baffled Anne-Marie Pierce as she studied her devil cancers down under. The genomes of the tumours were all pretty much the same and completely different from the animals in which they'd been growing. Forty more near-identical tumours gathered from five continents proved the uncomfortable truth. They were dealing with contagious cells, not an infectious virus. Vice's paper was published in 2006, just six months after Pierce's publication about the devil disease. Like the devil facial tumours transmitted through the wounds caused by face-biting, CTVT has spread through the population by exploiting the genital damage inflicted during dog mating. But unlike DFTD, which seems to have sprung up in the past few decades, these tumours seem to be much older. By comparing DNA from the tumour with various breeds around the world, the UCL team concluded that the original founder was likely to have been an old Asian dog breed from China or Siberia, or possibly a wolf. CTVT is the longest-lived cancer that we currently know of, picking up a staggering 19 million mutations along the way, and it continues to evolve and adapt in different parts of the world. Like the original devil cancer, the dog venereal tumour cells have lost their MHC compatibility genes, explaining why they have no trouble jumping from host to host. Elizabeth Murchison has also been able to retrace the route of CTVT as it spread around the world. The latest analysis suggests that the disease first arose in Central Asia, somewhere between 4,000 and 8,500 years ago, staying in that area for several thousand years. It started spreading from the 1st century onwards, hitching a ride to the Americas during the 16th century as adventuring sailors took their favourite mutts to sea and making a return journey a century later. Murchison has also been able to create a genetic photo fit for the founder dog in which the tumour first grew, suggesting that it was probably a medium or large-sized animal similar to today's Alaskan Malamutes, with a black or dirty sand-coloured coat pricked up ears and a pointy nose. Unfortunately, she wasn't able to discern if the original animal was male or female, so we have no way of knowing whether it was a very good boy or a very good girl. Until 2015, it was thought that CTVT and two strains of DFTD were an outlying trio of intriguing anomalies in the annals of cancer research. Then came the clams. Since the 1970s, marine biologists have been concerned about a strange disease sweeping through colonies of soft-shell clams along the northeastern seaboard of the United States. Similar to leukaemia in humans, it causes rampant proliferation of haemocytes, the clam equivalent of red blood cells, which clog up the body and eventually lead to death. Up to 90% of a colony can die from the disease, which isn't only a biological disaster, but an economic one too, as the clams are an important part of the seafood industry. News of this clam calamity reached Michael Metzger, a young researcher at Columbia University in New York. Like Vice's quest for the virus behind CTVT, Metzger suspected that a virus might be responsible for the disease and set about trying to find it. 
By analysing DNA from infected animals, he found that the cancer cells did indeed contain a virus-like piece of DNA called Stema, which embeds itself in random locations within the genome as part of its life cycle. Weirdly, though, the site where Stema had chosen to muscle into the clam genome was exactly the same in every single cancer sample he looked at, even if they came from clams in completely different locations. It was too much of a coincidence to expect that an element like Stema would randomly hop into exactly the same spot in every clam. After further genetic analysis, he came to the weird but inevitable conclusion that this must be yet another contagious cancer transmitted through leukaemia cells pumped into the surrounding seawater by infected individuals. The North American shellfish beds aren't the only places affected by these kinds of cancers. Metzger wanted to know whether similar destructive diseases in other locations were also caused by the same clam cancer cells drifting around in the Atlantic. Amazingly, he discovered four more completely different transmissible leukaemias one in Canadian mussels, along with two separate cockle cancers, and one in golden carpet shell clams off the Spanish coast. Even more weirdly, this last example appears to have originally come from a completely different species, the pullet shell clam. Curiously, pullet shells don't show any signs of being susceptible to the golden carpet shell disease and must have somehow developed resistance along the way. More recently, Metzger and his team have discovered two more types of muscle that are infected with the same transmissible cancer cells, which first arose in a third species. One of these muscles lives in the seas surrounding South America, whilst the other dwells in European waters, suggesting that the cancer cells have somehow made it all the way across the Atlantic in search of new hosts. Along with the discovery of the second devil tumour, Metzger's startling results took the number of known transmissible cancers that have arisen spontaneously in the wild from two to nearly ten within a few short years. And I wouldn't be at all surprised if that number goes up in the future. What's more, sifting through the scientific literature reveals another disturbing example of a cancer that has crossed the barrier from one individual to another. Early in 2013, a 41-year-old man walked into a clinic in Medellin, a large city high up in the Colombian mountains. Diagnosed with HIV seven years earlier, he was in a bad way. He'd been skipping his treatment, was losing weight and coughing persistently, and was consumed by fever and exhaustion. The most obvious diagnosis was worms, based on the presence of parasitic tapeworm eggs in his stools. But he also had strange nodules in his lungs, liver, lymph nodes and adrenal glands. A course of worming tablets didn't do much to help, and the lumps continued to grow. When he came back a few months later, the doctors took a closer look at these unusual growths. Although they looked like tumours, packed with proliferating cells, plumbed with blood vessels and invading into neighbouring tissue there was something very odd about the cells themselves. They were much smaller than typical human cancer cells, yet they didn't look like normal tapeworm cells, 
or any other kind of parasite. After sending samples up to the US Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC in Atlanta, Georgia, the horrifying truth emerged. The tumours were made of tapeworm cancer cells. The disease had presumably originally developed in one of the parasites infecting the man's gut and invaded the rest of his body, and his HIV-damaged immune system was powerless to stop it. The CDC team reported their grisly findings back to the man's doctors in Colombia, but they were too late. He was already very sick, owing to the combined complications of advanced HIV and the tapeworm tumours, and he died just three days later. As far as we know, this is the only example of a cancer managing to jump the species barrier between parasite and human. But given the relatively high prevalence of both tapeworms and HIV in many parts of the world, combined with relatively poor cancer diagnostics and data collection, we have no idea whether or not this was a one-off. Rather than being a biological curiosity, transmissible tumours are starting to look like they might be a thing after all. The big question is, how rare are they? One factor that pops out of all these stories of contagious cancers is that failure of the immune system seems to be critical for allowing transmissible cancers to gain a foothold in the body. Another is having a route for transmission. In the case of Tasmanian devils, it's face-biting. For dogs, it's sex. And for shellfish, it's just spewing cancer cells out into the sea. Given that all the examples of cancer cells transmitted between humans so far have been under unusual circumstances, I'm curious whether or not a true contagious cancer could ever turn up in our own species. Given that the most obvious route for transmission would probably be through sex, many of us would hopefully be canny enough to spot something amiss down there. Although the persistence of unpleasant sexually transmitted infections suggests maybe not. Direct contact doesn't have to be the only route for living cells, though. Mosquitoes are responsible for transmitting malaria parasites, which cause more than a million deaths every year. So, could they also pass on cancer cells? Horrifyingly, the answer turns out to be yes. Back in the 1960s, an unusual contagious cancer arose in a laboratory colony of hamsters, The origins of the disease were unknown, but it quickly became obvious that it was being transmitted by cannibalism. In order to stop the spread, the animals were kept separated with wire mesh barriers in their cages. Yet the tumours continued to appear, growing from cancer cells spread by coughs and sneezes. And under carefully controlled experimental conditions, researchers even managed to show that mosquitoes could transmit the tumours. It's an artificial lab system and a highly contagious disease, but the tale of these cannibal hamster cancers tells us that insect-borne spread is at least possible. Transmissible tumours are undeniably rare, but they demonstrate the evolutionary capacity of cancer cells to exploit new environments and evade the protective powers of the immune system. By reshuffling the genetic deck to generate novel possibilities, even to the point of transcending the life of the organism in which they first arose, cancer is a powerful, 
deadly example of evolution in action, which is exactly why it's so hard to treat successfully. That's all for now. If you want to know about the stuff I didn't have room to include here, like the story about the terrible guy who injected cancer cells into prisoners and people with dementia, plus lots and lots more about cancer, evolution and the science of life, then check out my book, Rebel Cell, available now as a hardback or to pre-order as a paperback from all good retailers and the usual evil one too. And head to rebelcellbook.com to buy a signed copy or a signed bookplate sticker. We'll be back next time taking a look at what we can learn about the past from ancient DNA, from Denisovans to direwolves. Yes, they really did exist. For more information about this podcast, including show notes, transcripts, links, references, music and everything else, head over to geneticsunzip.com. You can find us on Twitter at geneticsunzip and please do take a moment to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It does make a difference, I promise, and it does help more people discover the show. Genetics Unzipped is written and presented by me, Kat Arney. It's produced by First Create the Media for the Genetic Society, one of the oldest learned societies in the world dedicated to supporting and promoting the research, teaching and application of genetics. You can find out more and apply to join at genetics.org.uk. Our theme music is composed by Dan Pollard, our logo is designed by James Mayle, and audio production is by Hannah Varrell. Thanks for listening, and until next time, goodbye. <laughs>